We're going to look at a couple of different passages together today, one which we read just a moment ago, and then one which we have been looking at uh, more or less in a lot of the the times we've spent together on our Sunday mornings. So turn with me to the parable of the Good Samaritan. It's in Luke chapter 10 on page 1042. Uh, And we'll probably have a a look at that before we get to the passage which we read a moment ago. So Luke chapter 10 on page 1042. Keep that open and we'll get to it in just a moment. Let's pray together. Father God, often we imagine that we already see the world as you see it and that already we are obedient to you. But then from time to time we come to your word and we discover that our lives are, are still far from being in step with your spirit, uh, that the commands of your word are not being lived out as fully as, as we imagined and as we would wish Lord, we pray that you'd come by your spirit, that you'd show us again from your word the call of Jesus on our lives, and then help us to obey. Amen. This autumn we've been learning from God's word about the call to serve the needy in the name of Jesus Christ. I know from conversations that I've been having uh, with some of you that you find this very challenging. And I know I have as I've studied it and I've tried to, to preach it faithfully to you over these last couple of months. We had an interesting evening. I've mentioned it already in our service on the 20th of September when we met together for our launch workshop of our church community and change program. And the interesting part of that evening was when we gave you the opportunity to talk about your hopes and your fears as our church goes out uh, to serve other people in the name of Jesus. I was really bowled over when I looked at the responses. I have a printout at home that has every single response that went on the yellow stickies. I was bowled over by the level of, of positive response the number of people here who who want to to learn more about this and want to take steps to serve as Jesus has called them to. I was quite struck too by the the fears and the concerns that we have raised. And, And I wasn't surprised by many of them because I too share them. A few weeks ago, we began, by, began to look at one or two of these concerns, and we looked particularly at how God's Word would respond to them. I don't know if you remember, but uh, a few weeks ago, we looked at a question, how much of a priority should we give to a serving ministry when we also have a, a command to, to preach the gospel? How do you prioritize those two? And if you remember, we went, went way back to the, the beginning of God's Word right, to to Genesis chapter 3, and we looked again at the fall, and we saw how comprehensive the needs of human beings are. We saw how they're alienated from God, they're alienated from themselves, from each other, 
and from their environment. And then we said, well, the gospel of Jesus Christ is a gospel for the whole person. So we should expect that when we preach the gospel, when we go out into our community, that we deal with all of their needs. Of course we preach the gospel. Of course we long to see them reconciled to God. But we do so in a way that their other needs are met also. Their alienation from themselves, the breakdown in our society as we're alienated from each other, and even our, our broken relationship with our environment. So we began to see that, that these concerns of ours are entirely valid and that the, the answers, as always, lie in God's word. Today I want to come and deal with a, another concern. If I told you that this one came top of the heap by a country mile, you'll probably know what it is. If you looked at all the, the responses we got, all the things that people were a bit worried about, the thing that came top of the heap was our resources. How are we going to do this? In terms of time, energy, and finance, how is it possible that we could do anything significant beyond our own walls? And that's the question I want to think about with you this morning. Folks, this is where the rubber hits the road, isn't it? Let's talk time and money. If you want to know what's important in life, in your life, in, in any life, time and money. I remember a professor at college telling us, you want to know what's important to somebody's life, ask for their bank statement and their diary. And you've got them in a nutshell. How they spend their time and how they spend their money. Where is the time going to come from for all of this? Many of us here this morning are already busier than we'd ever hoped to be. We don't feel able to give any more time to church. So that's something that we need to think about. It might encourage you to know that, that we are thinking about this in our church leadership. There are three things that immediately sprang to mind when I was thinking about this. Our, our church leadership here at Kirkpatrick Memorial understands that we don't want our church life to become very bloated, full of loads of church activities to suck up more and more of your time. We want to keep our church life streamlined so that you know, I think there's a bit of a, a lottery going on here, we're not sure which of the parents is, um, I'm relieved. Um, our church leadership understands the, the time pressure that, that people feel. We, we, we're committed to keeping church life here very, very streamlined, to only doing those things that we passionately believe will help us to grow as followers of Jesus Christ. We're not looking for diary fillers here. Uh, please understand our commitment to that. Please understand also that we already know that some people in church life are, are overburdened. We understand also that some people, maybe you're here this morning and you haven't had a chance to find a role in church life yet. We would like to work better to facilitate that. So at the moment, our, our leadership is seeking to appoint a member of staff here called a ministry coordinator, somebody who will help each person in the congregation to find the right level 
and the right type of service and ministry. We're, we're taking that very seriously also. In just a, a, very, a very much more simple approach, I guess, one of the evenings that we've set aside, uh, one of the workshops that we're planning in our church community and change program is an evening simply addressing this subject, helping each one of us to think of how we can free up time to, to serve the needs of our community. So time is going to be an issue. Uh, we need to think about that. Where is the time going to come from? This morning I want to spend a few moments with you in God's Word thinking about the other half of the resources question. Where will the money come from? We thought about money in a short preaching series here in the springtime of this year. So this morning we're going to come back to that topic but with a a specific uh, context this time and a specific connection. Where is the money going to come from to allow us to, to do our serving ministries? It's at this point that I want to jump back with you into the parable of the Good Samaritan. Uh, Luke chapter 10, page 1042. This parable has important things to say to us about time and money. This Samaritan's service was expensive in terms of both of those. On the day when he met the beaten up man on the road... The Samaritan sacrificed a lot of time. We're we're told in verse 33, when he saw the man, he took pity on him. He went to him, he bandaged his wounds, he poured out oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. So we understand from the story that, that not only did he spend the time that particular day, he also spent the night in an inn. This took time. Wherever the Samaritan was going that day, he didn't make it. Whatever was on his to-do list didn't get done. Whatever was on his agenda, it had to wait for him to serve this broken man. Serving the needy is going to take time. I don't think there's any shortcut there. I think that's something we must come to terms with. The financial implications of his service become clear in verse 35. We read that the next day he took out two silver coins and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I'll reimburse you for any extra expense that you may have. He offers the innkeeper rent, and some of the commentators reckon that it's maybe a few weeks of rent. But actually, he doesn't stop there. He says, here's the few weeks' rent, but my offer's open-ended. I'll pay you whatever it takes for this man to be looked after. Serving the needy in the name of Jesus is going to take money. So, if the parable of the Good Samaritan is right about this, then it's going to be a costly business for us to get involved in serving other people in the name of Jesus. And of course, the whole Bible teaches just this. It's not enough to give a little to the needs of the poor. We have to give generously. In Deuteronomy 15, God's people are told, if there's a poor man among your brothers, do not be hard-hearted or tight-fisted towards your brother. Rather, be open-handed 
and freely lend him whatever he needs. The King James Version is wonderfully graphic. It says, open thy hand wide unto him, sufficient for his need. So we've got to be generous with our money serving others. But serving others in the name of Jesus doesn't stop with signing the check or the direct debit mandate. God calls us to give ourselves, our hearts and our minds to our serving the poor. I I was quite challenged by this. Psalm 41 verse 1, it says, Blessed is he who considers the poor. In his commentary on the Psalms, Derek Kidner says that the word considers here is striking. It's a word that usually means practical wisdom or giving careful thought. Now that means that writing the check and forgetting about it isn't what we're called to. It's letting this get into our hearts and our minds and dwelling on it, making it part of our lives. It struck me that me giving the pound to the big issue woman on the way past in as much of a hurry as I can so that I feel as little guilt as possible. That's not what the psalmist is talking about here. The psalmist is talking instead about the harder path of beginning to ask how I can help that woman. It's beginning to allow the thoughts and the concerns How are we going to help that low-income family that we know to get through a credit crunch winter with high fuel bills? Allowing our minds to dwell on these things, to consider them, to give ourselves to them. That's what the psalmist is talking about here. I know that some of you are beginning to do that because I've heard you talk about it this past week. What does the psalmist says? say? He says, blessed are those who consider the poor. If you're starting to think and to dwell on this, if you're starting to give your mind to how you can help people in need, then you're blessed. The smile of God is on you. Even in those first tiny and simple and seemingly insignificant steps. God bless you. Go for it. We're finding this stuff very challenging, some of us. And I think the truth is we're beginning to wonder what impact taking God's Word seriously might have on a congregation like this a predominantly middle-class, relatively comfortable congregation like ours, can we do what God calls us to without a radical change in our lifestyles? Whenever we thought about money in the springtime of this year, we gave one of the three uh, Sunday morning slots to thinking uh, about a simple lifestyle. And throughout the history of the church, this has always been understood as a key discipleship issue. In 1977, Ron Sider, an American, wrote a a book which has become very famous, 
rich Christians in an age of hunger. And he talks there very, very directly and very powerfully uh, about the, the use of wealth in the Christian West. He talks, for example, about a graduated tithe. Following this principle, all Christians, he said, ought to give at least the tenth of their income that the Bible talks about. But those who are given more and who are wealthy ought to be giving an increasing proportion of their income. So, for example, under Cider's scheme, a person who is on a relatively low income, say £10,000, will give £1,000. They will give a 10% proportion of their income. But, says Cider, a person who's on £50,000 will give in a totally different scale. They might end up giving £20,000 on a graduated tithe. People begin to step out of, of comfortable, cozy lifestyles. John Wesley, very famous to us for his his preaching, his role in the founding of Methodism, he practiced this kind of a lifestyle. When he died, he left a teaspoon, sorry, two teaspoons, I'm told, and a coat. And that's despite the fact that he was earning 1,400 pounds a year when he died in the money of his day. Towards the end of his life, he was living on 30 pounds a year while earning 1400 So he lived on almost a 50th of what he was earning because he took seriously the call of God to live in such a way that he could bless the poor. John Newton, the hymn writer and the pastor, in a letter to a young man in his congregation recently married who was looking for advice about how much to give Newton gave him three guidelines. He said, choose a standard of living of the bare necessities. He said, ensure that your hospitality includes the poor and not just people of your own uh, social class. And thirdly, make generosity to the poor a priority before planning for your own comfortable retirement. I run those issues by you not to say that we, we jump and respond in a copycat manner, just to show that this call to this kind of a lifestyle has been understood throughout the history of the church as normal, foundational, fundamental part of discipleship. Turn with me again just now to the passage that we read earlier in 1 Timothy chapter 6. First Timothy chapter 6 on page 1,194. We looked at this in our money series in the spring, but I want to look at it with slightly different eyes this morning because I'm thinking particularly of the role our money can play in serving the needs of the poor. This is probably one of the fullest and most balanced pieces of biblical teaching on, on money in the whole Bible. I just want to point out a few implications this morning very, very quickly. Whenever we see what Paul's saying here, he's saying, first of all, we need to learn to think well about our wealth. Look at verse 17. Paul urges Timothy, command those who are rich in this present world. And by the way, let me remind you, if 
if we're thinking in our own heads that we're not rich, I would suggest that for, for a good number of us, perhaps for the majority of us, certainly on a world stage, we are rich. I read a statistic recently that says if you have running water in your house, then you're wealthy on a world stage compared to to billions of other people already were marked out as wealthy. So Paul urges Timothy, command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant or to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God who richly provides everything for our enjoyment. Look at that last bit. God richly provides everything. I wonder do we believe that? Do you believe that your wealth is a gift from God? Or do you believe that it's a a well-deserved result of your hard work at school, possibly at university, and maybe now in your career? Is your work wealth a gift from God or is it a result of your own hard work? If you think that your wealth is your own, answer me this. What of the person who works just as hard as you do but who because of different circumstances earns a quarter or less of what you do? A person who wasn't blessed with the same intellectual gifts that you were. A person who didn't have the same opportunities in education that have been given to you. Is it not all a gift of God's grace when we're able to to work well and to earn money? Friends, it's all a gift. Every last penny. We need to learn, says Paul, to think well about our wealth, to remember where it comes from and how it comes to us. A second principle here. Anyone who has wealth ought to use it to serve others. Look at verse 18. Command the wealthy to do good to be rich in good deeds, to be generous and willing to serve. Paul's not talking here about the odd token good deed. He's saying that we should be rich in good deeds. There's a way of becoming richer as you give away. Forget about designer labels, he says. Forget about bling. And clothe yourself in generosity in giving, in acts of kindness and service. Isn't this what Jesus taught his disciples? Sell your possessions and give to the poor. Provide purses for yourselves that will not wear out, a treasure in heaven that won't be exhausted, where no thief comes near and no moth destroys. Folks, there's a lot more that we could say about this passage this morning, and as I've already said, we did spend time on it 
in the springtime of this year. I want to bring our thinking to a, to a close by asking a question of how, how we think of this in its totality. How, for example, do we reconcile what Paul says in verses 6 to 9? He talks there about a simple lifestyle. How do we reconcile that to what he says in verses 17 to 19, where he seems to talk about people who are rich without ever demanding that they stop being rich? Tim Keller gives a useful summary in his book, Mercy Ministry. He says, we must conclude that while there may be rich Christians, there should never be rich living Christians. Middle and upper income Christians are not required to give away all their capital, but they must invest it in good deeds rather than their own comfort. A good steward for the Lord knows that wealth, if held and properly managed, will produce more good deeds over a long period of time than if it's given away for good deeds all at once. We aren't required, I don't think, to rush out to put the house on the market tomorrow. Nobody would buy it anyway if we did. Most of us have lost our money in our bank accounts. We aren't required by God's word for these grand gestures. But what I think is required is a total commitment to use whatever God gives us to serve him in this world. I think that is what's required. I found it a wonderful opportunity to, today to talk again about money because it brings a fullness that we didn't have when we thought about the simple lifestyle in the springtime. When we thought about the simple lifestyle on its own terms, there was something missing, I felt. These two things need to be held together the simple lifestyle and serving the needs of the poor. If we don't take seriously the needs of the poor, the simple lifestyle becomes some sort of interesting idea and hobby. It has no real purpose. Why would we be sacrificial with how we deal with our wealth if there's no purpose to that? Friends, serving the needs of the poor, this thing that we're giving our attention to at the moment, it simply won't be possible unless we are willing to radically alter our lifestyles and enter into a simplicity. Those two things go hand in hand. They'll only fully make sense, I think, the both of them when we practice both together. We've been thinking this morning about the resources that we're going to need for a significant serving ministry. Where is the money going to come from? It's going to come from us. As we learn more and more to trust in God our Father who gives us everything, who supplies everything that we need, we'll find ourselves freer and freer in our giving. As we pay more and more attention to the model of Jesus Christ, 
who left the riches of heaven and became poor that we might become rich, then we too will learn to leave our riches and give to the poor. As we open our lives further and further to the Holy Spirit of God, as the kingdom of God becomes our priority, we'll find that we're less focused on building and maintaining our own kingdoms. Where's the money going to come from? It's going to come from us. As God moves in our hearts and makes us into people overflowing with generosity and kindness. People like him. People who mirror Jesus. Let's pray.